Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. We hope you had a good Easter and we're here with a bank holiday special. Our Easter egg. It is our Easter egg. And this this is a a conversation that you were very keen to have. You've been quite excited uh, by both the book in question and the wider project. Yes. Let me ask you, what's your favourite Easter egg? Do you know what I'd love? An enormous cream egg with a giant well of fondant in it that I could dip a spoon into. Really? Mm-hmm. Do they have enormous cream eggs? I don't think so. You can sometimes get a cream egg Easter egg, but it's a cop-out because it's hollow and then there's like tiny cream eggs. I, I want an enormous version of a cream egg. Do you know that cream eggs aren't sold all the year round? They were at one point and it didn't work, so they're now only sold between January and April. I like that. I'm a big advocate of seasonal food. Are you? Yeah, it's more sustainable. As the Shadow Minister for Net Zero, it's, it's very important that people eat cream eggs seasonally. Agreed. What about you? Whenever anybody asks you your favourite dot, 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 what they're really saying is, I want to tell you mine, but I'm being polite by framing it as a question. So so what is yours? No, I'll eat any Easter egg, really. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I like I like sort of, I know it sounds very, I like, quite like chocolate buttons. <laughs> a chocolate buttons Easter egg? Well, it's a bit babyish, but good for you. Yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of my choice. So, in our Easter egg is a really exciting conversation about a book called Not Too Late, Changing the Climate Story from Despair to Possibility. And the book is by Rebecca Solnit and Thelma Young Lutanatabua. And honestly, it's a great conversation that we had with them both. The book is really trying to say to people, as the title suggests, it's not hopeless. You know, there are things we can do to tackle the climate crisis. And I think it's quite sort of challenging to some of the normal discourse around climate. It's a collection of essays. It's got contributions from uh, scientists, activists, organisers, wide range of people that Rebecca and Thelma have gathered together in this book. And um, 
Well, I love the conversation. I don't know about you. Yeah, it raises some very interesting questions about framing. And I wanted to say optimism, but Rebecca would not like that because she's not into the word optimism, as you will hear. If you're interested in the conversation, you can purchase the book. And it's a great read, and it certainly kind of opened my eyes in a number of respects. There's also a website as well on the same theme. So here's the conversation. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. I'm glad to say that we're joined by Rebecca Solnit and Thelma Young Lutana Tabua to talk about their book, Not Too Late, Changing the Climate Story from Despair to Possibility. Thank you both for joining us. Our pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Maybe we could just start by asking you, because you talk about this in the acknowledgements towards the end of the book, why you decided to write the book. You said that you were both coming from similar places in thinking about the climate emergency. Maybe you can just say the thinking behind doing the book and, and what was that place you were coming from? Selma and I came together in 2020 uh, through a mutual friend and realized we had similar views, both that nobody was really addressing the emotional impact of climate, except by depoliticizing it as a whole separate therapeutic thing. And that nobody was really giving people reasons to be hopeful, or a lot of people were, but it wasn't really gathered together. And that it would make sense to do something that would look at what is still possible, what can be done, things that are being done now, and give people tools for thinking about the climate crisis as well. We like to say we're here to offer good facts and good frameworks, and you need both to respond to the crisis, both in terms of your own well-being and in terms of being an engaged person, helping work towards the best possible outcomes. Yeah, and I think the climate movement's really good at saying what it's fighting against, but isn't always great at explaining what it's fighting for. And so we also wanted to articulate that with this book of the vision for the world we can build and get people excited about the future. Yeah, it feels like the climate movement did a very good job over decades of convincing people we're facing a very, very serious problem, getting people to know that there are things we can do about it, that there's a movement, that there's victories behind us. All those things felt really missing from what most people knew about the climate movement. They think there's no solutions. It's too late. Nobody cares. Nobody's doing anything. We don't know what to do. We're waiting for a miracle. We're all going to die. I mean, we've heard it all over and over. We are all going to die, but, you know, that's always been true. Human beings are mortal. Talk to us about how you define hope as opposed to optimism, because we have reasons to be cheerful on this podcast. And I, th- I think we, we think we're in the optimism business, but should we be in the hope business? How are the two things different? Absolutely. And I wrote a book called Hope in the Dark long ago. And hope for me is an embrace of the uncertainty of the future, the fact that the future is not yet written, we're making the future in the present. And optimism to me is a form of false confidence. We know what's going to happen and therefore nothing is required of us. And it's twin sisters, pessimism, which is we know exactly what's going to happen and it's going to be terrible no matter what. So kick back and watch it happen and maybe sort of grumble and spread the gloom while you're at it. So for me, optimism is very passive. Hope, as I define it, for lack of a better word, is very active or, you know, hope doesn't really mean anything without action. Action doesn't really happen without hope. 
Yeah, one of our favorite quotes, and this is on our, our website, is from Václav Havel. And he says, hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something is worth doing no matter how it turns out. And so hope is centered on spaciousness, that there is spaciousness to act. We don't know how it will turn out, but there is space to to be a part of that action and that it's necessary. There's also a lot of toxic positivity, which again, you know, kind of tells people, don't worry, geoengineering, you know, technology will save us, we'll be fine. But hope is recognizing what's going on, not hiding from it, and then stepping into that spaciousness of action. And what does that look like in practice with regards to the climate movement? I think it's a lot about frameworks, about understanding how change happens, how power works. People have very unrealistic ideas. I ran into two people in the last week or so who asked me, why should I do something when the outcome is uncertain? And it's like, well, if nobody did anything with an uncertain outcome, there would be no sports, no romances and no children, for starters. There would be kind of nothing. You know, most people in this world get up and stand at the bus stop because they think a bus will probably come. And maybe it won't, but you do it. You call your mother and hope she answers and still likes you. We do things every day that are based on hoping for an outcome. So it, it feels like people often approach this with really self-destructive equipment, the sense that they need to know what's going to happen, that only very powerful people in the limelight, officially powerful people, can do anything. A lack of understanding how changing the story can change everything, how movements that have changed the world again and again around the environment, around slavery or apartheid or marriage equality or women's rights, started out small and marginal and built and grew and achieved things that often even people involved thought were impossible at the outset. Christiana Figueres, who negotiated the Paris Climate Treaty, thought it was impossible when she took the job on, and then she did it, which I think is the spirit in which things actually happen. Just before we get on to some of the implications of what you're saying, would I be right in saying that you think there is too much sort of doomsterism, if I can put it that way, in the climate movement? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's completely justified. But with every single major scientific report that comes out, especially the last two IPCC reports, they were very clear. There is space to act. We have the technology. We know what the solutions are. There is space to act. We do not have to give up on 1.5 right now. And so too soon the headlines jump to humanity's gloomed when the scientists are being clear, no, there's room to act. Too often, not just the climate movement, but media as well, I'll throw in there, jump to the doom and gloom way too quickly. Actually, the UN's top climate official said last week, it's not too late. The IPCC clearly demonstrates that it is possible to limit global warming to 1.5 with rapid and deep emissions reductions across all sectors of the global economy. You know, that doesn't look like it's about to happen. As I get older, I settle into a lot of mottos. One of them that's the title of my essay in the book, or one of my essays is Difficult is Not Impossible, because people often conflate those things. It might be unlikely, it might be difficult, but it isn't impossible. And our job is to make it possible. 
I think it's such an important message, which is why I was partly so keen to have this conversation, because immediately I saw your the phrase, it's not too late. I thought it was incredibly powerful. I had this conversation with Luisa Neubauer, oh. the young German climate activist, and and I had exactly this discussion with her about hope. And she said, well, yes, that's true, but you've got to acknowledge loss before we can discuss hope. I don't think loss has been neglected. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's neglected in our book or our project. There's a funny way people will smack down anything else with the, the sort of what about, what about all the bad things? And it's like, you don't have to not acknowledge all the bad things to mention the good ones. You don't have to mm-hmm. ignore fear to talk about hope. You don't have to ignore destruction to talk about constructiveness. And so there's a lot of binary thinking that if you can't win everything, you're going to lose everything. If you don't know exactly what's going to happen, it's completely out of your control. And, you know, so much of what we are trying to address is the frameworks in which people imagine themselves in the world, these all or nothing frameworks. And I have to say, I think toxic positivity is a brand new word for our old friend optimism, which I am absolutely not a fan of. Optimism to me has always felt very passive and like, it will all be fine. Let's gloss over all the evidence to the contrary. I'll jump in because in the book, we also interview Adrienne Marie Brown and we ask her, you know, what's the relationship between pleasure and hope? And she says, you have to kind of microdose pleasure to maintain hope. And I think there's often this view that climate activists are all sad, angry, depressed, not fashionable people, when really, in order to keep us going, we do need those moments of beauty and joy. Like, let's not forget the world is beautiful. Let's not forget time to play with our children, to go on walks, to be outside. And you you need that cheerfulness. You need that beauty to maintain hope. And we're not saying despair is no place. There's so much to despair over. Well, we just want to remind people, don't stop with despair. Pick yourself up and keep on going because we have to fight. Thelma, you say in the book that you uh, count your homes as Fiji and Texas. Just talk to us a little bit about what that means and what sort of hope looks like. And it's not too late. Looks like looks like from a Fijian perspective, for example. Yes, I I grew up in Texas and then came to Fiji by a love and my husband. And one big thing that we want people to take away from the book is the feeling that they're not alone. And if they're feeling alone in the work, then go out and find community. So no matter where I am in the world, I want to be able to go out to my community, go out to the people around me, not just uh, connect with them in a transactional way, but really build community with them because the only way we're going to survive is if we act together and if we take care of each other. Um, And we saw this during COVID, the rise of mutual aid societies and the rise of people reaching out and connecting with each other. Um, And so Fijians and Texans are both super friendly people. And one of the best things that you can do for the climate right now is build a strong community and act with your community. And you quote Bill McKibben in the book, when people ask him what's the most significant thing you can do for the climate, he he tells them stop being an individual, mm-hmm. join something. How would you go about convincing people of that? I suspect that in some cultures like Thelma's, it's built into how you're taught to think about the world, what your society already looks like, all the ways you already feel connected. I, I live in San Francisco. 
I feel one of the horrible things Silicon Valley has done, along with eating my city alive, is really spread isolation in a lot of ways, this kind of great disconnect. A lot of things do that. Consumerism tells us, as does capitalism, that we're private individuals, all our needs are personal, we don't need meaning, purpose, community, civil society, democracy, justice, we just need pretty things and lots of them, and maybe, you know, the immediacy of family and lots of money. But it does really make people's worldview pretty sad and dreary, and people are really isolated now. Um, technology's made them more so. The pandemic and working at home has made them more so. Mm. There's so many kinds of withdrawal. But also, I think Thelma and I both believe the ways that we need to respond to the climate crisis isn't just getting away from fossil fuels and electrifying everything and all those practical things. But the worldview we need to actually believe these things are meaningful, to understand that all our actions have huge repercussions on the atmosphere, the ocean, etc., is a worldview of profound interconnection, of mutuality. I feel that's coming very strongly from both indigenous and the scientific worlds, and that a lot of people are reaching for it, but a lot of people are suffering for lack of it. People need to take action together. And so take care of your neighbors, but also find a local climate group or a national climate group. In almost every country in the world, I can guarantee you there is a group fighting for some sort of climate action. Even if you're an introvert, do the awkward thing. Go to a meeting. Jeff, that's directed at you. I had a word with Thelma earlier, actually, and I said, you need to direct this at Jeff. <laughs> Wait, Jeff is the shadow minister for staying home? Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, in the shadows. Go to a meeting and I guarantee you afterwards, you'll feel less despair. You'll feel cheerful. And so, you know, whether it's Greenpeace, 350.org, Sunrise, or a local climate justice group, just do the awkward thing step up, say, I want to volunteer, find your talents. You know, we don't need just angry activists in the streets. We need designers and storytellers. We need engineers. We need electricians. Use whatever talent that you have, bring it forward to whatever group's already organizing and say, here I am. How can you use me? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thelma, you say something very important, I think, in the book, which is when you address the question of how we describe the better world. And you say in the dialogue you have with Rebecca in the book, for too long, the rhetoric in many climate spaces is we need less, drive less, eat less, turn off our lights. Can you explain what you mean by that? Oh, yeah. For so many years, it's been what can I do? And it's about reduction. And reducing consumption is important. I don't want to dismiss that. But we're not framing enough what we can do if we want to create the better world. So, you know, instead of drive less, you know, are you carpooling with your neighbor? Instead of, you know, eat less meat, are you having, again, are you having potlucks? Are you sharing meals with people? Through the actions of fighting the climate crisis, maybe we can actually build a world where we're happier. We have beautiful parks. We have beautiful cities. We have cleaner air. 
And that's what I want people to kind of shift their thinking of instead of fighting the climate crisis will make my life worse. I want people to think about actually fighting for climate justice will make my life more beautiful, more full of community, more full of hope. And so we need to shift it because again, like Rebecca's saying, it's stepping away from individualism, it's stepping into community, stepping into abundance and stepping into possibility. But I think this is quite interesting because it is quite countercultural to the way the climate movement has generally operated. I love the climate movement, but it's generally talked about the disaster that will come from climate breakdown. And it has generally had what we would call a sort of hair shirt approach. It hasn't said maybe as much as it could have done. We're in the better lives business. And that's sort of what you're saying, isn't it? I would say, yeah. And the climate movement had a long phase where it had to convince everybody that we're facing something very terrible and destructive. And it's done that. I think the job now is to convince people, first, that we have a solution. Secondly, that we can build a better world. We live in a world full of so many kinds of poison, political and literal poison. And we live in a profound poverty, even those of us in the affluent global north, a profound poverty of social connection, of meaning, of hope. More than 8 million people a year die of particulate matter from fossil fuels. I truly believe that it makes sense to say we live in an era of austerity in so many ways that has been so normalized we don't see it, and that what is required of us could create a world of abundance. And then you also point to another thing that Bill McKibben talks about a lot, Most of what the environmental movement has consisted of for the last hundred and something years is saying, don't build here, don't build there, don't do this, don't do that. We need to build like crazy. We need to electrify life on earth for human beings as fast as possible. And that's going to mean the mining of rare earths that stops us from having to mine fossil fuel. We need to build um, electric everything and the infrastructure for it. So we have to become people who are really aggressively for something in the ways that we've been really aggressive against something. And I think that's going to be a big conceptual transition that is not what most people or a lot of people's temperaments are tuned to. It's sort of a a social movement of builders, not blockers. Yes. And that is actually radical. And it's kind of, it's strange for me. I have protested fossil fuel extraction and gold mining in Nevada, which is a huge gold mining producing state and stuff. And now I'm like, you know, we're at the beginning of an energy revolution, not the end of one. It has been tremendous already, but we're not going to go to a pre-industrial civilization overnight. I don't think that we can magically have a world of no mining tomorrow. And I think that's one of the difficult conversations we need to have. You're saying the climate movement needs to be about better lives and you say we need to build things and sort of get real in a way. What has the reaction been of people in the climate movement when you've had these conversations with them, as I'm sure you've both had in the run-up to the publication of this book? It's been fantastic. And one point we haven't mentioned is a lot of the doomism, despair, it's too late, we don't have the solutions comes from people who really lack good information. And you and Thelma both talked about the IPCC scientists, two of whom are in our book. The scientists were in a very scary situation. We know exactly what to do and how to do it. Let's just do it. And so we've had really good reception. I think people who are in deep, the truly committed people are ultimately hopeful. 
I mean, the things that are happening, the ways we have failed, the encroaching deadlines, the possibilities of collapses, um, the suffering already, all impinge on them. And I've seen the kind of moral suffering, the anxiety, the fear and stuff. They've carried the weight of the world, many of them for, you know, in the case of Bill McKibben for more than 30 years, but they're not hopeless. I, you know, hope is just that if you do this, something will happen. We operate on hope every day. It's not this rarefied special thing that only naive and unengaged people have. Can I ask about the people who are featured in the book? How did you go about choosing them? One day, Rebecca and I sat together in our kitchen in San Francisco and created the table of contents and created our basically our dream team of people. The book is heavily U.S. voices and then also a lot of voices from the Pacific and then also Asia. We wanted to do a global book, but then we also recognized that Rebecca and I's worlds are basically the U.S. and the Pacific heavily. And so we decided to lean into that. We wanted to find scientists. We wanted to find activists. We wanted to find poets and people from lots of different walks of life who could all feed into the language, into this message. And we reached out to our dream team and and everyone said yes, which was amazing. So it's a really great team. Whether you are a scientist or not, this book is not about the science, though there is some. We want it to be entry level. We want it to be anyone can pick it up, put it in their backpack Keep it as a resource. If you're ever feeling down, just pull it out, read one of the essays and keep on going. Were there any contributions you were especially surprised by when they appeared in your inbox? I Maybe there was a surprise. Our friend Renato Constantino, who's a Philippines-based climate activist, decided to tell the story of how at the Paris Climate Conference, Power From Below with the Climate Vulnerable Forum, himself and some other people made all the nations of the world agree to set the threshold at 1.5 degrees rather than 2 degrees. And that's a remarkable story. It both illustrates something Thelma and I are very committed to, the power of people who are thought of as often as powerless, and the fact that now everybody thinks 1.5, like it was graven on the tablets of stone Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, to think that it could have been 2 degrees is both terrifying and a reminder that like, we can change stuff, we can change big stuff. And such an illustration of how to do it. And the other shocking thing was Red, Red, as we call him, said that the story had never really been told. I think this is such an important point, actually. And it takes me on to a question I wanted to ask, because I was at the Copenhagen climate conference uh, of 2009, which didn't go well. But but leave aside whether it went well or badly, you know, 1.5 was seen as a sort of such a minority demand. And the notion that the US, for example, would have signed up to 1.5 was just sort of unimaginable. And it takes me to a question I wanted to ask, because Rebecca, you said somewhere, good ideas never start out in the centre, but at the margins, and they get legitimated in the centre. Mm-hmm. Maybe one of the ways that we can be hopeful about the climate is the good ideas that started out at the margins. And you know, ended up at the centre and being legitimated. I mean, I think about the whole notion of fossil fuel divestment, for example. A quick recent example that's happening right now of that is what Vanuatu is doing with the um, ICJ. 
So what started out as a small group of law students at the University of the South Pacific in the Vanuatu campus, they were trying to think of what can they do? How can they use any existing legal systems to bring climate justice? Started out with a small group of students there. They got the Vanuatu government on board. Then the Vanuatu government has um, brought on board more than 120 nations who are calling for a non-binding advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice. And this would bring clarity to existing international laws on how um, we can strengthen action on climate change. It's non-binding, but it could really open the doors for so much more legal action on the climate. It's a beautiful example of things that started off on the periphery, starting from the front lines and then rolling and expanding. And it's, it's, I'm really excited to see what happens. What an amazing example. And I'm sure there were lots of people, you know, in the bleacher seats saying like, oh, you're just <laughs> students. Oh, you're on this tiny island that's probably going to go underwater. Nobody cares. You have nothing to do. And here they are changing the world. The bleacher seats are the uh, sort of back of the baseball stadium, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's the kind of armchair people who feel that it's somebody else's job to try and do things and their job to tell them that they'll fail. It's amazing how many people think that that's their assignment. I mean, this is also a story, isn't it, which you could generalise mm-hmm. about sort of how political change happens, which is that, you know, people put ideas out there which are derided and said to be ridiculous, and then it's movement. And, the, and you know, you have to go through a lot of defeats to get to victory. And that's just the reality. One of my most favourite and hopeful books is uh, the historian Adam Hochschild's book, Bury the Chains, about how a dozen Quakers gathered in a back room in the city of London in the 1770s and decided to abolish slavery in the British Empire. And it's as outrageous as the Venutu law students, except that it took 50 years and only one of them lived to see slavery abolished in the British Empire. But those stories are countless. When you look at any major change, marriage equality, abortion rights, women getting the right to vote, indigenous rights, the rights of nature. There's a famous thing Gandhi apparently didn't really say that goes, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win about how change works. I would insert with the climate movement a new step, then they attempt to co-opt you and pretend they're with you while they're still your enemy for all the governments, institutions, corporations claiming that they're going to do all kinds of lovely things for the climate that don't actually require them to dial down the carbon emissions and methane emissions, etc. But that is, ideas are migrants, um, just as human beings are. And they, they start out small, they start out seeming outrageous and impossible to people in the mainstream, who often, in my experience, I've been around a while, 10 or 20 or 30 years later, can't believe they ever thought those things, whether it's, you know, abolishing Jim Crow, integrating our segregated until the 1970s Ivy League universities, a black president. The world is in a constant state of change. And I think the vision of it as essentially static is one of the places that a sense of defeat comes from. This is why I feel like you can't address the facts without the frameworks, because the frameworks are so important for understanding the nature of power and change and possibility. I think that might be a good place to end, Jeff. What do you think? I love that idea as a migrant. I've never heard that before. 
Oh, they are. And it's one of the things I find absolutely fascinating. For example, in the U.S., you can take away the law that gives women the right to an abortion, but you can't take away the idea that women have the right to an abortion. And you see ideas spread, like the way revolutions spread in the Arab Spring uh, a dozen years ago, or Occupy spread across the street with its anti-capitalist critique of economic inequality, ideas about marriage equality. I hate the term viral, especially after the pandemic. There should be some better word for things that travel almost unstoppably. But, you know, they're like the wind. They're like the tides. Once they're there, they keep moving. And sometimes they become outdated. And, um, you know, there are bad ideas and outdated ideas as well. But ideas move. And I feel like we're in a state of civilizational change. I think one of the most powerful drivers of of action is love. And that's something that kept on coming up with almost every essay and interview in the book is we have to ground this work in love. I worked on this book when I was pregnant and have since had my baby and have felt that new immensity of love come into my life. And also that feeling of If anyone ever hurts my baby, I'm going to come for you. And I think often, again, the climate movement, people see it being based in fear and anger. But let's make sure that it's grounded in love, because I feel like love is the biggest pusher of people power um, imaginable. And I think of the love that I hold um, for my new son. And that's what is carrying me forward every single day that says, do not give up, do not give up more than than fear or despair. Well, look, that's been a brilliant conversation. Rebecca and Thelma, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.